This is Habank. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Components of the U.S.'s first industrial-scale offshore wind farm arrived in New Bedford Marine Commerce Terminal on May 24th, ushering in a dawn of an industry that supporters claim will create 3,600 new jobs, save ratepayers $1.4 billion, all while moving our region's grid towards renewable energy. Whether one prioritizes the economy or the environment, such plans seem unassailable to the casual observer. But a close look at the costs and benefit of offshore wind suggests it may not deliver all the value it has promised. To wit, for such projects to offer long-term value to consumers and taxpayers, the cost of the electricity they produce over time would need to be lower than rates from traditional sources. The jobs they create would need to be above those expected from an economy without wind power. The power they produce would need to replace current CO2-emitting alternatives, and the impact on the environment and climate would need to be less than that of current power production methods. How does offshore wind stack up against incumbent power production methods? And given our best projections, will the tax credits, subsidies, and public support for this nascent industry pay off for all of us in the long run? My guest today is Dr. Jonathan Lesser, adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute and president of Continental Economics. Dr. Lesser has more than 30 years experience in energy economics, during which he has offered expert testimony and reports for state and federal energy regulatory commissions. He has testified before Congress and many state-level legislative committees on energy policy and regulatory issues. Dr. Lesser has written extensively on the economics of offshore wind, examining its evolution from nascent technology in Denmark to the modern incarnation planned for the coastal waters of New England. Dr. Lesser will share with us his views on the value of offshore wind through the lens of the economic and environmental promises of its most ardent supporters. When I return, I will be joined by energy economist, Dr. Jonathan Lesser. Okay, we're back. This is Habwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by economist and energy policy expert, Dr. Jonathan Lesser. Welcome to Hubwonk, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Oh, so I'm eager to talk with you about um, offshore wind power. In fact, uh, our headlines today talked about the uh, first shipment of a, a huge uh, a turbine blade for uh, in New Bedford for a new project, the, the Vineyard Wind Project. So our listeners, uh, this is top of mind for many of our listeners. Um, there's a lot of promises. So I want to explore this whole concept of offshore wind. Um, but uh, let's start from the beginning, uh, get a sense of we're all, we turn our, we flip the switch and the light comes on. How do we get our electricity here in New England now? Well, most of it's uh, coming from natural gas plants, as well as imports of hydroelectric power from Canada. Okay. All right. And um, so um, we're, we're going to be talking about wind right now. I, I don't think we have any current wind, off wind, uh, substantial offshore wind projects right now. Uh, so this will be the first. Uh, just for our listeners who aren't following this online, uh, this uh, new GE, uh, I think it's Halietti X13. Uh, it's a 13 megawatt turbine, a massive machine. Uh, it's part of an 800 megawatt project called, uh, off of Martha's Vineyard called Vineyard Wind. 
Um, the claims for this project sound pretty darn good. Um, it, it, when finished, it'll, it'll generate enough power to, to power the equivalent of 400,000 homes, the equivalent of taking 325,000 cars off the road, uh, create 3,600 full-time jobs, uh, and save uh, the consumers $1.4 billion in electricity costs over 20 years. Uh, I'm ready to pop the champagne, but let, let's go deeper on this. Um, uh, you've been studying this for more than two decades. So first, some history. We're not the first pioneers here. Uh, who's using wind power now in this uh, big world of ours? Well, it's primarily being used in uh, Europe. Uh, so, you know, you have Denmark, you have Great Britain, uh, Germany. Um, those are the major countries using it. But how much power is... Um, generated by offshore wind in Europe. I want to put it in context where this vineyard wind project is about 800 megawatts. Uh, do you have a sense of how much offshore wind is being produced in Europe? Again, this presumably is an industry leader. Uh, the, the offshore wind capacity in Europe is, I, I don't have the exact number. It's probably at this time about 15,000 megawatts. All right, so uh, you know, it's, it's substantial. And again, we're, by, by way of background, we've seen windmills on land. Why is it that offshore wind seems to make sense? Uh, to me, it seems sticking a wind, windmill in the middle of the ocean is inherently harder than putting it on a hilltop. Why, why have we sort of um, uh, made offshore wind a priority? Well, wind on land has received huge amounts of pushback from uh, people in rural areas where these turbines are being located who don't like them. They're gigantic. They kill millions of birds and bats every year. Uh, people don't realize bats, for, for instance, are crucial for pollination, pollinating crops. So um, it's just, you know, they, the amount of land they require is so huge. Um, there's health impacts associated with the low frequency noise all wind turbines emit. I mentioned the, that this is uh, this first turbine is a GE uh, Heliide or Heliide. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's supposed to be state of the art. Is it? Are we getting the good stuff? Is this uh, as well, good as it gets? Yeah, it, it's, it's currently the largest wind turbine in production. Um, it's just barely starting to be installed in Europe. Um, you know, how well it will perform? Don't know uh, because there's no data on it. Uh, but again, as I as I mentioned, uh, some research by Professor Gordon Hughes of University of Edinburgh showed that over the last 10 years, the most recent wind turbines, 80% of them suffer catastrophic operational failures in their first 10 years of operation. Uh, whether the Halyard will will do the same, uh, yeah, obviously we don't know yet. So uh, your your PhD is in economics, right? Uh, well, I'd love to introduce some economic theory here or a basic business theory. Um, we're buying a product that is going to deliver a, a benefit. So uh, uh, some business analysis would say, okay, look, uh, what we spend has to be less than what you make. Otherwise, it's not viable. It's not it's not a good idea. So. When we're looking at these projects, were we to propose one or agree to one, uh, in my you know layman terms, I would say, well, how much power are we going to get from this uh, project, and then uh, how much is this going to cost us, uh, and you know compare the two and see if it effectively is worth it. So let's let's try to take a, a economist view of this and say, how do we assess how much 
wind power we're going to get. I, I, we made some claims of how much power will come from this 800 megawatt farm. How, how do we arrive at the, let's say, uh, let's start with the cost. Uh, is, is that fairly uh, easy to estimate given, um, you know, we know where it's going and we know what it's made of? Well, the U.S. Energy Information Administration has estimated the costs of offshore wind per megawatt at roughly $6,000 per kilowatt, which translates to $6 million per megawatt. So vineyard wind at 800 megawatts is probably uh, around $5 billion. The actual cost uh, is highly confidential. Vineyard, vineyard wind will not let anyone know other than uh, I believe some of the regulators in Massachusetts know what that cost is. But, uh, you know, for the public, we'll never know what the cost is. So, uh, so we don't know what the actual cost is to install the uh, wind farm, uh, but we do know what they're expected to get paid for the power that they provide to us. Is, is that right? I mean, we, we, it's a um, power purchase agreement. I think I've, I've read in your work that the, the, the term for, okay, before we, we put one um, turbine in the sea, we need to have a promise of, of being able to sell this power. How do, how do we estimate that? And, and how do the, what do those contracts look like? Well, uh, Vineyard Wind has a PPA, uh, Power Purchase Agreement, uh, as you say. Um, it, they are trying to renegotiate that agreement uh, upwards. Right now, uh, they have told the state of Massachusetts that the existing PPA, it's not, they're not, uh, the project's not economically viable, won't make any money for them uh, at, a, at the current PPA price. So, you know, and, and basically when they signed the PPA, interest rates were near zero. You, had, you didn't have the, all these supply chain issues. Now those are in full force. You have inflation, you have supply chain problems, um, you know, costs are much higher. And there's a huge backlog uh, in terms of materials uh, you know, steel, rare earth metals, uh, rare earths, I'm sorry, that go into the turbines themselves. Uh, those have all skyrocketed in price. Uh, just getting the undersea cable to connect the uh, offshore turbines to the shore to deliver the electricity, there's uh, at least a several year delay uh, or back order. Uh, the ships needed to install the Halyard turbine uh, right now, there are uh, five in the entire world that are capable of, of hand installing these size turbines. Another one is being built right now in Virginia, uh, and it will be the sixth ship. It's supposed to be ready sometime next year. Uh, it will be the only one that can actually is, is compliant with the U.S. Jones Act which is a uh, an antiquated law requiring, uh, you know, if, if it's a U.S. flag ship, you know, to deliver to a U.S. port, it's the only one that can do that. So, uh, you know, I would expect Vineyard Wind and Mayflower Wind, the other project, uh, current project in Massachusetts, uh, to uh, request increases in their their PPAs of probably 20 to 30 percent. Now, and, and what your listeners should know is that those costs that have been proposed are already higher than the market price. In well, that, 
that's what I wanted to talk about. I mean, I, I, I'm going to introduce an economic term called opportunity cost, but effectively, we want to know what the cost is of the next best alternative and, and sort of assess whether uh, we're getting our money's worth. So put it in perspective, you use megawatts or kilowatts, how much more money w- would we pay in theory uh, to acquire a, a watt of power from a wind turbine than we would from, let's say, gas gas powered uh, traditional uh, electric? I would probably pay about three times more. About three times more. And and that's given the, the context. And what your reader, what, what your listeners should really understand, is it's a different quality of electricity that's being delivered. A gas turbine will run all the time. It you know it, it basically uh, if when whenever you need electricity, it's there. For a wind turbine, it only generates electricity when obviously the wind is blowing, and that requires backup. So the more more offshore wind you build build and rely on for your electricity supply, the more backup generation you have to have for when the wind's not blowing. And in fact, you need a hundred percent backup. Uh, you know, especially in times like summer, you'll have say p- demand for electricity peaking because you know it's it can get hot in New England. Uh, and, uh, you know, at times when it's the hottest, people are turning on their air conditioners. And the wind stops blowing. As anybody who sails in August, they know what the doldrums are, right? Right. Uh, so so uh, that backup cost is gigantic. Essentially, you have to build an entire system just to back up the wind or solar, the same thing. And so the cost, this is one of the most disingenuous things of wind energy proponents like to ignore. They just forget about the backup costs because well, someone else is paying for that. Let, let me play devil's advocate because, again, um, what I know about power generation is that, of course, um, uh, as you say, uh, gas uh, gas turbines uh, run at a constant speed or near constant and are, are there on demand. Uh, but they become inefficient if you turn them on sometimes and then turn them off when you're using wind and turn them back on. So there's some inefficiency there. What about the um, the alternative, like uh, being able to store power? Are we, uh, you know, as a grid or as a uh, technology uh, 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 technologically advanced country, can we store some of that power so that when the wind is blowing, we, we put it underground and when we need it, we can pull it back out? Um, you could store a little of it with batteries. Uh, or pumped hydroelectric plants, but the cost is prohibitive. Uh, the amount of of battery storage, for example, you would need uh, would require uh, you know hundreds of Tesla, what are called Giga battery factories, uh, making batteries for decades to store enough of the electricity, and that's at current levels of demand. Add into that. The fact that under this administration, uh, they want to electrify everything. So they want to take out your gas stove, your gas furnace, uh, and they want to convert it to electricity. Uh, And and of course, electric vehicles. So you're talking about probably tripling or quadrupling the demand for electricity. And in this fantasy, we're going to meet all that with wind and solar and battery storage. Well, it's it's physically impossible. It will not happen. 
Well, let me challenge that by it's just sort of using a, uh, again, I, I don't know who to believe, maybe perhaps our listeners are in my same uh, situation. I've heard that the cost of um, projects, particularly as they get rolled out and become embraced more broadly across the country, uh, here, California, down Virginia, um, won't the cost sort of uh, be driven downward? We know, I'm going to introduce a concept called Moore's Law, where you know the, the cost of, of uh, computing uh, over a certain period of time be, is cut in half, or the you know the, for the same dollar you can buy twice as much uh, storage or computing power. Is there sort of a downward pressure on on prices as 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 this becomes more broadly embraced, or or is this a fantasy? Well, let's start with offshore wind. Uh, for offshore wind prices, the the costs are actually increasing. Um, you know, this is not we're not talking about Moore's law of you know computer computing costs, computer chip costs. Uh, in terms of shrinking transistors down to microscopic size. Uh, you're talking about a project that uses lots and lots of raw materials, huge amounts of raw materials, much more than, say, a natural gas turbine. Uh, the prices of all those raw materials are increasing, not decreasing. Um, I mentioned some of the rare earths that are used in wind turbines. You know, you've had price increases between since 2020, price increases of between 100% and 400%. The price of steel is going up. The price of basic, uh, the power cables, it's all going up because of increased demand uh, and uh, you know, higher supply costs. So the notion that, that proponents of these technologies push is that, well, the costs, and you know, they have forecasts of costs going inexorably downward uh, to where they'll be too cheap to meter. Well, that's just false. It's not going to happen. And, and again, in reality, the costs are going up. Uh, you also have a problem of market power uh, in terms of, well, especially for solar, because China controls the, the solar photovoltaic market. So for offshore wind uh, and battery storage, same thing. Um, you have predictions of or projections of battery storage costs going uh, much, much lower. It, they're still prohibitive. They're four or $500 per kilowatt hour of storage. Uh, to get an idea of how much that is, uh, ratepayers in Massachusetts are paying about 20 cents per kilowatt hour for their electricity. And, and what would they be charged, uh, let's say, from a wind farm? Just if it would, you know, you could flip a switch and go from what we have now to what we would have 100% wind, wind farm if the wind is blowing? Um, I would say that the electricity rates would triple. Triple, so six, 60 cents. But, so, and that doesn't include all this, the backup costs. Right. So let, let's get more deep into this. Again, any project has to have assumptions built into it and say, okay, we're going to build X and get Y. Uh, we're talking about 800 megawatts. That's a lot in my mind. Uh, but um, ultimately, we've got a certain number of turbines and you've got a 20-year lifespan. You've written extensively on the fact that in real life experience, you know, again, Europe has has been uh, has had offshore wind for some time now. There is a natural degradation in the efficiency and the ability. You talked about catastrophic failure. If I start off year one with 800 megawatts, if I could snap my fingers and build it all and it's ready, at the end of 20 years, am I, do I still have 800 megawatts or does something happen out there? Probably not. But, you know, how much depends on, obviously, uh, in, in some cases, the luck of the draw. For example, uh, one of the big issues that really isn't talked about 
is the problem of hurricanes off the Atlantic coast, which obviously people in, uh, in Massachusetts are familiar with. Um, they don't have those in Europe. So there's a question, can these offshore wind turbines that are planned for the United States Atlantic coast survive, say, category three, four, or five hurricanes? It's not clear that any of the large insurance companies are willing to insure turbines, uh, which is a problem because, you know, as far as I know, there is no turbine on Earth that would survive, say, a Category 5 hurricane off the coast. They would be destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, now, if that's, now, how likely is that going to happen? Well, we don't know. Obviously, hurricanes take place every year. How often they go up the East Coast? We just don't know. Um, uh, but that's certainly a problem. And, and the other thing your listeners should understand is um, how these projects are set up from a business standpoint. Vineyard Wind is a limited liability company whose only assets will be the turbines themselves. So if something happens to the turbines and you know, they suffer catastrophic failures, or let's say there's a, a hurricane that uh, destroys most of them. Um, the only assets Vineyard Wind has are those turbines. So if it's uneconomic to rebuild them, keep operating them, uh, Vineyard Wind can just walk away. And it, you know, basically it's bankrupt, even though it's owned by, I believe, Orsted. Um, Vineyard Wind itself, having no other assets, can walk away which means that Massachusetts ratepayers and ratepayers in other states uh, will be left with the decommissioning bill to clean up the, the abandoned turbines. Yes, I read something uh, quite a bit about your, your concern about decommissioning costs. It, it surprised me that the, these weren't baked in. Uh, certainly, I, I, I've done a show about nuclear power, and we talk about maybe some of the more prohibitive reasons of cost, uh, why we don't have more nuclear power. But of course, the cost of decommissioning a nuclear power plant, it, it, they by law have to set aside a certain amount every year. Is this not the case with turbines? And, and again, I would imagine they have a natural life. Uh, we talk about 20 years, but it may not even last 20 years. Isn't there uh, built into the cost, the cost to remove it or replace it? Uh, in fact, no, there's not. And the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management just recently issued new rules saying that um, they will gauge that, that wind projects do not need to have any sort of, of uh, uh, set aside like nuclear power plants into a decommissioning fund. And, they'll, and they're saying that based on the credit ratings of the, the offshore wind developers, which is odd because none of them have credit ratings uh, other than Dominion Energy, which is planning to build a 2600 megawatt uh, offshore wind project off the coast of Virginia. But Vineyard Wind, if you look uh, at S&P or Moody's for credit ratings, they don't have them. So th this would be at least uh, some concern for, well, I guess, ratepayers. Uh, we talked about the increased cost, but also taxpayers. I mean, ultimately, the government doesn't have its own money, so somebody's got to pay for it. Uh, right. We'd be left with essentially a worthless asset, uh, a uh, either a destroyed or uh, no longer usable right. um, wind farm. All right, let, let's let's table that for a second. I want to drill down into uh, the other promises of these um, projects. Uh, we we talk about becoming perhaps the uh, Silicon Valley of uh, offshore wind. 
Um, it sounds a little bit Keynesian. It makes my uh, hairs the back of my neck uh, 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 tingle here a little bit. We, w- the idea being, well, independent of the value of the energy produced, we're creating lots of new jobs. I think 3,600 full-time jobs. Um, all those people are going to be well-paid. Uh, they're all going to be spending money and, and revitalizing economy, particularly among the middle and um, lower income uh, strata of our economy, which are so important. I think even some of these projects, uh, I was reading that some mandate how many jobs must be produced. In other words, it doesn't matter how many jobs it takes. Uh, some of these projects are rewarded by how many jobs they promise to make. So this is, and I hate to say, sounds more like a make work kind of uh, 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 priority. Uh, and also, when this, their mandates for um, how many um, uh, the uh, uh, racial composition, you know, how many, uh, what percentage of women work in these places. So it sort of seems like a, a progressive Shangri-La. Um, explain for our listeners, does, does this kind of uh, government trickle-down uh, investment and creating uh, industry de novo, uh, does, does that make sense in an economics sense? Uh, in a word, no, makes no sense. Uh, Basically, the theory is we can subsidize our way to economic prosperity, which is impossible. Um, the The whole idea that they, all the all the New England states that are have offshore wind mandates, like Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, um, they're all saying we're going to get this first mover advantage. They call it. We'll be the first to build wind turbines, and as such, we're gonna we're going to collect the all the the wind turbine manufacturing will locate in our state, uh, and the the ports to, to set up you know to stage all the installation. Well, obviously, every state can't have a first mover advantage. That's impossible. Um, but what but what we're seeing is that the the offshore wind uh, in, uh, companies themselves they're bringing in their own people to install them. First off, the manufacturing the, the Halliate is not manufactured in the U.S. All that's being it's being built in Europe and delivered, so there are no jobs there. Uh, the installation job uh, the ins- the jobs created by installing. Um, well, that is uh, basically the ships that install uh, the wind turbines. They're like oil drilling rigs. It's very similar and, and involves a similar skill set. Um, so those jobs are likely to come, if they come from the U.S., it's from the Gulf Coast uh, because that's where oil drilling rigs are. So um, you people in Massachusetts, the workers, um, Pride don't have any expertise in how to, ins- you know, oil oil rigs. You know, there's no oil rigs off the coast of the, the Atlantic coast, so those jobs aren't coming from the state. Um, you know, the the claim that this went off uh, the vineyard wind is going to create 3,600 new jobs is just foolishness, because and the, the other thing they ignore is that when you increase electricity costs which vineyard wind will do and all the other offshore wind projects will do you you reduce economic growth and cost jobs because electricity is more expensive that's something in fact the Rhode Island Public Utility Commission back in 2010 said about 
um, the Block Island wind, uh, wind Project. That's the only uh, operating offshore wind project in the United States. It's five turbines. It's a total of 30 megawatts. And uh, back in 2010, the Rhode Island PUC uh, uh, dis, you know, disapproved the project, saying the high cost of electricity is basic economics. It's going to cost jobs and reduce economic growth. And, and it took the Rhode Island legislature basically passed new law, uh, a new law telling the PUC, you will approve this, period. You have no choice. Yeah. And so the, the notion that, and, and this is happening in Europe. Um, offshore wind is and solar are causing electricity prices to soar or the subsidies needed to, to get them built which is cost, uh, causing de-industrialization in European countries like Germany, Britain. Uh, industrial companies are leaving those countries because the electricity is too expensive. They can't afford and they can't afford to, to stay there. And so they're leaving to places where electricity costs are lower and obviously taking all those jobs with them. So, of course, again, you said this sort of in a roundabout way. These are these are really transfer payments, right? If you're talking about subsidies, we're saying in a you know an economy, the government doesn't have its own money, so it must take money from somewhere else, in the form of taxes or money that doesn't give to other projects, and subsidizes this, this sort of creates something that would otherwise not exist. But you, I think your point is very powerful in that if we raise energy prices, the the cost of energy for, let's say, low or middle income people is much higher. Their electric bill matters much more in their life than, let's say, a higher income person. But you also point out, and I think it's it's important, I'll just restate what you already said, which is the cost of energy is an input cost for everything, right? So we um, keep the lights on in our office, it raises the cost of an office. But of course, if we're processing anything or producing anything or moving anything in, in, in New England, and it costs more, uh, there's going to be less of it. So we're effectively shooting ourselves in the foot by making power um, more expensive. And as you say, the irony is promising jobs where the net effect will be probably net negative jobs if energy is more expensive. Yes, it will be negative. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, because you can't, and, and you're right about the, the subsidies for offshore wind are staggering. Uh, in addition to a 30% investment tax credit, which means uh, the vineyard wind owners in Europe will receive about you know one and a half billion dollars in tax credits and that's money that will go from the u.s taxpayer overseas to the european countries um there's also a, what's called the wind production tax credit which is currently 26 dollars a megawatt hour uh, or 2.6 cents per kilowatt hour um, and that will be paid to them for every kilowatt hour or megawatt hour of electricity they generate. Uh, they can get another 10% uh, investment tax credit if, if they have meet domestic manufacturing content uh, minimums, which they won't, but that's, you know, that's available for them too. No other generating resource has any as tax credits anywhere close to that. No, but the I think I, often the irony is uh, a lot of my progressive friends often bang the table about uh, giveaways to big corporations. Uh, Thirty percent subsidy uh, is a big giveaway uh, to big corporations. So uh, you know, let, let's let's be consistent here. All right, but let okay, we've raised some serious concerns so far. But 
for our listeners who are, you know, look, the, the existential threat of planet Earth is is a greenhouse gas, global warming. The environment is is uh, number one. Uh, nothing else matters more than uh, keeping our our planet green. So let's stipulate that that is our number one priority. We will we will pay more. We'll lose a few jobs for the environment. So. Um, are wind turbines green? Uh, that's a, a big, giant question, but let, let's try to unpack it piece by piece. Okay, well, the short answer is no, they're not. Um, here's why. Well, first off, uh, if you look at the environmental impact statement of Vineyard Wind, which Vineyard Wind wrote, uh, it says all the offshore wind will have zero impact on climate change, none. So for your listeners who think climate fighting climate change is the most important thing uh, there is, uh, they, they will be disappointed because Vineyard Wind itself is saying uh, our project and none of the offshore wind will have any impact on the climate. Uh, secondly, the amount of materials you need for offshore wind compared to, say, a natural gas turbine or a nuclear plant is much larger. Plus, again, there's all that backup electricity you need. If it's batteries, uh, which a lot of the, the greens are pushing, uh, it requires metals like cadmium and cobalt. Uh, most of the, the world's cobalt is being produced in the uh, Democratic People's Republic of Congo using uh, child and slave labor. Uh, it's odd that greens don't seem to care about that. Uh, the rare earths are being processed in China. Uh, the environmental damage is staggering because China doesn't have environmental laws like we do. Uh, again, greens don't seem to care about that. Uh, the damage to fisheries will be extensive. Uh, I was just uh, dealing with uh, the Revolution Wind Project in Rhode Island, off the coast of Rhode Island. The Coastal Management Commission of Rhode Island is required to, to certify a project, is required to, to show that uh, an offshore wind project will not harm fisheries and the marine economy. Their own staff report, which came out in April, says it will devastate their fisheries. Yet they just approved last week, they just approved Revolution Wind, despite that. Um, the, you know, there's the issue about dead whales, especially in New Jersey and New York. Uh, a lot of the, the green advocates, it's, it's funny, we went from save the whales to screw the whales. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're denying that any, you know, this has nothing to do with whale or the, the offshore wind development. Yet uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uh, one of their chief scientists himself wrote a memo last fall saying offshore wind development will have significant impacts. And in fact, the allowed takings of whales. So in other words, you build an offshore wind facility, uh, you, can, you can essentially have an impact. There's two types, A and B. Uh, one, uh, I can't remember which is more serious than the other. Um, one of them involves killing. Um, you're allowed to basically the the offshore wind projects uh, so far approved will be allowed to kill over 700 North American right whales. 
Now, that's a problem because the estimated population of North American right whales is 400. So I assume that what it means is that every time an, uh, a dead right whale washes up on the beach somewhere, uh, they'll tow it out and so it can be killed again and wash up a second time. So, you know, the, the, the impacts on fisheries uh, uh, will be devastating. And there's negotiations now to try to pay off fishermen and the seafood processing industry. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it, it's to me, this is not green at all. Offshore wind is about the most costly and inefficient way to generate electricity there is. So, okay, I'm, I'm still trying to find a silver lining here. So what about simple air pollution? I, I can look at a, you know, a, a, I, I know I'm pumping out some CO2 if I'm burning uh, um, a natural gas, not much, less than coal, but I am still pumping it out. Uh, what about, you know, and we still have some coal, certainly in our, uh, our the middle part of our country. Um, surely air pollution is reduced with wind uh, relative to its alternative. Um, that's probably true. Uh, it depends how you're backing up that wind. Uh, if you're having to back it all up with natural gas plants that are cycling uh, on and off, as you say, that's very inefficient and it actually pollutes more. Um, you know, so and and obviously building offshore wind off the coast of New England, that's not going to have any impact on coal generation in the Midwest. Uh, it's, it's very different markets. So yes, there might be a small impact on pollution, but but you've got to remember that the pollution levels have since the night since the 1970s have gone down by over 90 percent, 95 percent. So it's really not an issue in terms of power power plant pollution. It's just not. It's no longer an issue anymore. Well, uh, again, I keep digging and trying to find that silver lining. I, I like to have two, uh, be like the two-handed or three-handed economist. I'd like to see uh, trade-offs, uh, but uh, this seems to have a, a pretty dismal uh, outlook here. Um, so if we look at wind power, we, right, we've mentioned that it's, it's more expensive. It, it's disruptive to a you know, presently fairly stable grid. Um, uh, you know, we're not using proper accounting techniques when we're you know, coming up with the cost of these these technologies, certainly in the long term. I like to ask all my questions, all my uh, guests questions uh, at the end. Uh, I'll call them king for a day type questions. So uh, you, you've been studying uh, uh, energy and power for more than two decades. You're an economist. What in your mind, if you and I both care about the environment, you and I both want a, a green uh, planet and uh, we were concerned about uh, climate change, what would you recommend as a um, uh, you know, criteria at least for evaluating wind projects, but perhaps you may have ideas on uh, alternatives to offshore wind that, that might be, at least with the technology we have now, uh, uh, more prudent. Well, in my view, the technology of choice is nuclear power, especially small modular nuclear reactors, which can be manufactured off-site. Uh, they have a standard design. They can be built in a factory and basically shipped to where they're needed. Um, nuclear power provides uh, emissions-free electricity 24-7, uh, and it's in fact less costly than offshore wind, uh, at least according to the Energy Information Administration's estimates of the, the capital costs. And the operating costs are very low. 
Uh, they're far more reliable. They last much longer. Uh, you know, nuclear plants have lives of 60 to 80 years at least. So uh, in my view, if, if for those who are concerned about uh, climate change and, and carbon emissions, uh, they should be strong advocates of nuclear power. Unfortunately, yeah. uh, a, lot of, a lot of environmentals uh, hate nuclear power. Indeed. Uh, well, I, I, I share your uh, um, fondness for nuclear power. Again, I spent a fair amount of time in the Navy. Uh, we've got nuclear uh, reactors on essentially metal tin cans floating around in the ocean uh, being managed by sailors. Uh, you know, we, we figured it out. We've made it safe and portable. So, um, I, you know, and we've been doing that for 50 years. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm confident we're there on, on nuclear. But let's let's focus still on wind. If you were our governors, as you mentioned, um, renegotiating these uh, PPAs with these with these projects, these large projects, uh, they want to get the best deal. She wants to get the best deal. Um, uh, what if you were sitting in her office saying, OK, they're making a proposal. We want a fair shake for our consumers, our voters, our ratepayers, our taxpayers. What should she be looking at when she's trying to evaluate the wisdom of a particular project that perhaps you think she had to date been doing? Basically, if I were the governor, I would tell the owners of Vineyard Wind, uh, Mayflower Wind, to go pound sand. <laughs> I'm not uh, sure. We might have to edit that out, but, you but may. let's uh, have something more constructive, more constructive. <laughs> uh, um, I, I would. I, th this whole push for offshore wind, in my view, is, is a travesty. Uh, this is being driven by greed. Uh, it's all for the subsidies. This is something Warren Buffett, Buffett said back in 2014. Uh, his company, Mid-American Energy, builds lots of wind turbines on land. And he said the only reason they do that is for the subsidies uh, and the tax, the tax credits. He said there's no other reason to build them. Offshore wind is five times more expensive than on-land wind. And the subsidies are even larger. Um, it, it to me, if you're if you want green energy and want to reduce emissions, then the thing that makes the most sense is find what is the lowest cost way of doing that. Well, offshore wind is the highest cost way, so why would you ever do it? And in my view, it's because of the basically um, one might call it bribes. I think the the other phrase is campaign contributions. Uh, you know, that all these politicians, all the environmental groups are receiving to basically buy their silence on offshore wind. It, the technology simply makes no sense. And for the U.S. to talk about, I think uh, the administration wants to build 40,000 megawatts of offshore wind by 2040. This is just silliness. It, 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 it all will do is destroy the, the fisheries industry and raise our electric prices. Yeah, and ultimately, when those prices go up, the politicians uh, are are gone, uh, the money's gone, uh, and we have no one to blame. Um, our listeners, I'm, I'm sure whether they agree with your observations or not, they've probably piqued their interest. Where can um, our listeners read your work and learn more about your perspective, uh, you know, when they're doing their own research? Sure. Um, well, uh, everything I, I write is published on the is uh, on the Manhattan Institute website. 
www.manhattan-institute.org, I believe. Yeah, we have to get the dash in there. I've, I've made that mistake. So manhattan-institute.org. Uh, and, you know, they can see uh, everything I write about offshore wind and other energy topics. And I, frankly, I invite uh, all your listeners, if you see, you know, usually the criticism I get uh, is that I'm being paid by Exxon and the Koch brothers, et cetera. <laughs> and my response is always, I wish. Uh, they're not. Um, I have no idea who funds Manhattan Institute. No one's ever told me what I can or can't write and research. Um, but, you know, for your for listeners who are, are you know, don't want to just call me names. I mean, for those who do, that's fine. Uh, but for those who who look at my research and want to challenge it, I invite you to do it. Tell me what what I've done wrong. Uh, and, and, you know, just let me know. Indeed. And, and many resources, which I appreciate, you do provide sources on your uh, papers, uh, often, ironically, are quoting the estimates made by the actual, as you say, the wind companies, the environmental groups. The environmental groups document the effects you describe. That's largely why I add you on, because your, your information is well supported by the science of the respective environmental groups that are in charged or tasked with ensuring projects are environmentally sound. You and they agree. It's the, let's say the project leaders are government groups, uh, our activist groups. Uh, they seem to uh, be, I hate to say it, science and climate deniers. <laughs> this, this isn't hard to understand. Um, and frankly, if it were such a great idea, I think it wouldn't need subsidies. Uh, you know? well, yeah, and that, that's, I, I, you often hear that argument where people say, uh, you know, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's it's the, it's cheaper than any alternative. My my response is always, so why does it have to be subsidized? That's right. And, That's right. and the answer to that is, well, we have to do it to accelerate development. The subsidies actually uh, retard development. They they discourage innovation because why do I need to innovate? I'm getting paid anyway. There's right. no, the competitive pressure to to make a better mousetrap which benefits everyone except perhaps mice, uh, isn't there. Yeah, and who can compete with a subsidized company? So it crowds right. out, it, yeah, it crowds out alternatives. That's why you're seeing nuclear plants getting subsidies because uh, wind energy on land and solar have so distorted wholesale energy markets and cause prices to go to zero or below zero in many hours that nuclear power plants can't compete. And so, and and so, and neither can natural gas plants. So they have to all get subsidies. It's just absurd. Yeah, indeed. And I think the biggest irony is they say, well, now if you worry about high uh, energy prices, all this extra wind is going to drive uh, prices downward. I'm like, well, it's already not economically viable. You're going to drive prices down for energy. How is it any more economically viable? Right? It's you know, it, right. they, it's it's selective um, application of economics 101. They, they they learn one half of the equation and sort of ignore the other half. Uh, so, right. anyway, we I think uh, I think we agree. I, again, I enjoy your uh, your work. Uh, it's well written and well uh, um, supported by uh, other research, uh, third party research. So, thank you for being on uh, Hubwonk today, Dr. Lesser. Your your insight has been valuable. Uh, I think it's been provocative, uh, and it may cause some of our listeners and our policy leaders who listen to the show uh, to rethink the rush toward uh, um, windmills offshore. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. 
If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. It's always welcome if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.